Welcome to the Food for Thought podcast. I'm your host, Erin Hallstrom. Despite all of the pantry stocking and comfort food eating that took place in 2020, sales for the food and beverage industry's top 100 manufacturers came in at only 1.7% over 2019 sales figures. In this episode of the Food for Thought podcast, I sit down with food processing editors Dave Fusaro and Pandan Mitrakakis to discuss the findings in Food Processing's annual list of the top food and beverage processors. Our 46th annual Top 100 list for 2021 ranks food and beverage processors based on their sales of value-added, consumer-ready goods that were processed in U.S. and Canadian facilities. Throughout the episode, we talk about how the pandemic impacted many food and beverage companies' bottom lines, and we also cover issues like labor and lawsuits while wrapping up the episode with our predictions for the rest of 2021. Enjoy the episode! Dave! Pan, great to have you back on the Food for Thought podcast again. Dave, I really want to get started talking about the top 100. What is it, and where are the numbers generated from? Oh, well, the uh, top 100 we've been doing for many years. It even precedes me on food processing, and I've been here almost 20. Um, the numbers... Uh, the companies, they may seem simple and, and similar, but uh, U.S. and Canadian food and beverage companies are a complicated lot. When I took over uh, Food Processing Top 100 nearly, nearly two decades ago, I wanted to create a list that represented these companies as U.S. and Canadian manufacturers of consumer-ready, not necessarily branded, but food products. And that may seem overly obvious, but at the time, Anheuser-Busch had amusement parks and golf courses and an aluminum can business. Uh, PepsiCo manufactures uh, almost as much product overseas as it does here. And Cargill owns ships and trains and iron ore mines uh, all over the globe. I don't think any of those things should be included in a sales figure that tries to represent these companies as North American food or beverage processors. There are some other lists out there in the media business, but they include all those things, as well as the leading uh, aloe jelly shot company in China, which I think is entirely irrelevant to a North American audience. So that's why these numbers are unique. Not all of them are impossible to find. Uh, Tyson and PepsiCo, for example, clearly indicate how much in sales comes from their overseas plants. Uh, and the U.S. and Canada are huge markets for Unilever, are so big that they normally break those sales out in their annual report, and it's easy for, for me to find. Weston clearly separates the gross sales of its chain of Canadian grocery stores from the products that it makes for those stores. But it's not easy with companies like Cargill and, and J.R. Simplot, even Purdue, our 2020 Processor of the Year has, has a lot more than chicken going on with operations in grains and energy and recycling. All three of those companies are private companies, too. So coming up with their figures, both because they're private and because they have a lot of side businesses, uh, is a big challenge. Follow-up question for you, Dave. 
What are some of the top-line things that you saw in creating the 2021 Top 100 list? Well, when I started this, this year's project, I, I kind of expected the collective sales for big food, the 100 companies represented in uh, this report, I expected that to be up maybe double digits. I knew there were losers, companies with manufacturing plants that were shut down by the pandemic or uh, who were too reliant on food service. But generally, I expected a healthy increase for the collective group. But when I totaled up the entire sales column for 2020, sales for the entire 100 companies increased just 1.7% last year over 2019. Now, 1.7% on a base of more than $500 billion, nothing to sneeze at. Still, I, I kind of expected more. I think that 1.7% growth sounds all the more anemic when you factor in that some companies had exceptionally good years. For example, the U.S. and Canadian operations of Grupo Bimbo, and that would be Bimbo Bakeries USA and uh, Canada Bread, saw sales rise more than $1.2 billion in 2020. That's 16% to $8.8 .8 billion. And again, just U.S. and Canada. Mondelez added a billion dollars, up 15%. PepsiCo was up $2 billion, an increase of 5%. Other double-digit sales increases included uh, Grupo Lala's U.S. operations, plus 22%. B&G Foods, up nearly 19%. And Unilever's U.S. food business, plus 18%. In a year that was difficult for big brewers, Boston Beer Company, the maker of Samuel Adams Beer, but more importantly, a host of trendier alcoholic drinks was up a whopping 39%. Also remarkable were uh, some of the profit increases. ConAgra's net was up 54% for the year. Bimbo SA's rose by a third. And Campbell's was up nearly eightfold. Treehouse Foods, which is still kind of in the midst of a portfolio reshaping, went from a $360 million loss in 2019 to a $14 million profit in 2020. Also remarkable, um, and this was true when we created this year's report, but as of this week is no longer true, uh, not one company from the 2019 Top 100 disappeared off the list due to acquisition. That's the first time in, in my memory that's happened. There's always been a Dean Foods or a White Wave that gets uh, consumed by a larger company and, and drops off our list. But that's no longer true, as I said, as of this recording, with the acquisition of Sanderson Farms by uh, Cargill and Continental Grain. Although I think that will result in the removal of Wayne Farms, not Sanderson, from our 2022 report, as that smaller poultry company will be merged into a... Uh, uh, suddenly private Sanderson Farms. All right, Pan, I have a question for you. What were some of the companies that did poorly during the pandemic? And can you elaborate on why? Okay. Um, I'm going to take the, uh, the why part of that question first. Um, uh, whether you did well or not during the pandemic uh, depended overwhelmingly on um, a single factor, how much of your business was in retail versus food service. 
uh, as is a familiar story by now, uh, people couldn't go to restaurants during the pandemic, and that caused a uh, huge and sudden drop in food service demand. Uh, companies that depended for, um, heavily on food service for their sales found themselves flat-footed. I think that probably the most outstanding example of this is those two great rivals, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola. Uh, PepsiCo is um, uh, in a fortunate position because it was uh, straddling the fence, so to speak. Uh, it has a big presence in uh, food service, especially hospitality, uh, fountain drinks uh, at uh, entertainment venues, uh, fast food restaurants, um, uh, just food service in general. Uh, but it was fortunate enough also to have uh, a big presence in retail with Frito-Lay. And Frito-Lay makes comfort food, which was um, in great demand during the pandemic, as we all know, uh, what's more comforting than a big old handful of potato chips. And so that was why uh, PepsiCo went up 5% in sales. Coca-Cola, which makes similar products, beverage products, of course, has uh, a much more exposed position because more of its sales are in food service, and that's why they went down 4% in sales. Uh, now, for the meat sector, which was arguably the most disrupted in the pandemic, results were mixed. Uh, Tyson and Smithfield had sales that were up slightly, but JBS's net income was cut nearly in half. Its sister company, uh, Poultry Processors uh, Pilgrim's Pride, uh, its income was cut fivefold. Uh, the income of Sanderson Farms was halved, which may explain why it was just recently sold. Now, um, meat packers had a uh, unique set of challenges. They had to deal with a, a, a food service to retail shift. Uh, like uh, like most food processors, and they also had a, a very bad situation with COVID outbreaks in their plants. They struggled with that. Uh, plants were closed. Uh, there was a great deal of uh, acrimony about uh, what can or should be done to protect workers. That's why you know it it all served as um, uh, a, a very tough situation. Uh, for, that they found themselves in. And uh, some of them also had uh, uh, problems unrelated to the pandemic, like trying to uh, work their way out of price-fixing lawsuits uh, relating to their, their conduct for the last 10 years or so. Now, there are some companies that did relatively well, like General Mills and Boston Beer, as Dave said, but they were hit with higher costs uh, for contract manufacturing and uh, extra pay and bonuses for workers. Now, some fortunate companies uh, saw a drop in business due to the pandemic, but it was mitigated by good business practices and other aspects of their operations. Uh, for instance, AB InBev lost 10% in sales worldwide because um, a lot of beer is consumed at bars and taverns that people could no longer go to. But uh, AB InBev's North American business sales were up almost 1% uh, 
due in large part to introduction of new products, principally Bud Light Seltzer and Budweiser Zero, both of which tapped into the, uh, the trend, the consumer trend, for uh, lighter alcohol or no alcohol beverages. Dave, back to you with a question. In addition to the human toll, did the pandemic create some unique costs for food and beverage companies? Well, it certainly did. Uh, the, the human toll and the uh, unquantified or, or subjective business toll, uh, I think we chronicled all through 2020. But it was interesting to see some of the public companies specify and sometimes even quantify pandemic costs in their annual reports. Uh, Boston Beer noted it experienced higher labor and, and safety-related costs at the company's breweries, and it noted COVID-19-related uh, safety measures resulted in a reduction of brewery productivity, so much so they had to shift some volume to third-party breweries, which increased production costs and uh, negatively impacted gross margins for them. Uh, but it did wonders for the contract manufacturers they used, of course. We did a cover story back in May about contract manufacturers and how the pandemic suddenly meant more work for them. Apparently, Mondelez couldn't make enough Oreos to, uh, to comfort us in this time, and so they had to contract even more of that manufacturer than they already had. Nestle SA actually quantified the cost of the pandemic in, in their report. 2020 COVID-19-related costs were... 420 million uh, Swiss francs, and that's about 475 million U.S. dollars. And they said that included expenses for bonuses paid to frontline workers, employee safety protocols, donations, and other staff and uh, customer allowances. The company also absorbed an estimated cost of about 192 million dollars U.S. related to staff and facilities made idle due to lockdown measures, although it admitted there were some savings in travel expenses. Pan, back over to you. Can you talk about how much growth shareholders can expect coming out of the pandemic, and how will the biggest food companies manage these expectations? Well, shareholders are shareholders. Uh, they always want all the value, all the money that they can get. Um, so the way that this will probably play out as we come out of the pandemic is that if uh, a company had or has heavy presence in food service and hospitality and lost a lot of business due to that, the shareholders are going to expect them to get those dollars back as soon as possible. If the company was heavy in retailing and they enjoyed a nice sales bump because of consumers uh, sheltering in place and cooking at home, the shareholders are going to want to keep those gains as much as possible. Now, one thing I've noticed is that um, companies that are heavy in retail, like Kraft Heinz, are already, in a way, managing expectations because in their quarterly reports, they're including uh, comparisons not just to uh, the same quarter in 2020, but to the same quarter in 2019. Uh, because uh, comparing uh, the current quarterly results to what they were experiencing during the pandemic bump is going to be a net negative, and so they're more or less explicitly telling uh, their shareholders, 
look at what we were doing before the pandemic hit. Now, I suspect that companies that are heavy in food service are going to do the exact opposite. Uh, they're going to look at how much better they're doing now than they were at the height of the pandemic and crow about it. This is called spinning. It's what companies do. Now, I feel that the best companies, the ones that are really on top of things, are going to have plans in place for uh, consolidating, keeping, and improving on the gains that they made during the pandemic, uh, such as keeping people cooking at home, uh, capitalizing on that new enthusiasm with new products, new promotions, etc. Or conversely, uh, if they um, uh, had losses during the pandemic because they were heavily into food service, um, they're going, you know, the best ones are going to try to capitalize on the excitement that consumers are feeling at being able to go out and have a good time again with uh, new products, extra marketing, uh, and, uh, you know, whatever they can do to take advantage of that situation. We've seen a certain amount of brand trading. Planters Nuts went to Hormel. PepsiCo spun off its juice business recently. What's the motivation for that, and will it continue? Well, companies have been trading off brands, orphan brands, for a long time. Uh, Dean Metropolis, for one, has made a career out of this. He's rescued brands by uh, rescued brands by buying them, turning them around. Brands like Twinkies, Chef Boyardee, and uh, he's gotten very rich doing this. Uh, in terms of brand trading, I think the pandemic might have accelerated it at least a little because companies had a motivation to get rid of extraneous SKUs in general to concentrate on producing the mainstream products that were suddenly in great demand in supermarkets. So now, of course, each case is unique, but uh, the, the basic general decision that a company has to make is whether the synergies of keeping a business in-house and keeping the concomitant uh, economies and efficiencies in production and distribution, uh, whether that is going to uh, keep a business uh, profitable, more profitable in the long run than selling it off. And the issues uh, that the pandemic presented with production and operations will probably uh, bring this question, this issue, into sharper relief. I want to wrap up this episode with kind of a look-ahead question. What do you expect the rest of this year to look like? And frankly, what are you forecasting for the year ahead? Well, it's been uh, worrisome, but I guess uh, to be expected, as we see this year's quarterly financial reports roll in. When the pandemic looked like it was ending, looked like it was ending a month or two ago, most sales already were returning to normal. In some cases, it's that proverbial new normal, and in some cases, it's the old normal. But either way, Campbell's overall sales started to drop again, 12% drop compared to last year in its third fiscal quarter, ended May 2nd. Soup sales, in particular, were down 24%. So that, that honeymoon is, is over. For ConAgra's fourth quarter, ConAgra had a great year last year, as I said, but for their fourth quarter, which just ended May 30th, net sales decreased 17%, and organic 
sales decreased 10%. A company official said it was unfair to compare these figures to pandemic sales levels because it was so inflated last year. It, it seems most company sales are down from 2020, but returning to, but not exceeding what they did in 2019. Okay, uh, if I could jump in here, uh, from an operational standpoint, I think the biggest short-term priority will be simply getting back to normal for many companies, stabilizing production, cutting back on expensive contract manufacturing, and especially stabilizing hours. Uh, we've seen what happened in uh, Topeka, Kansas with the 20-day strike at the Frito-Lay plant because workers were being forced to work just horrendous hours, 12-hour shifts, seven days a week in some cases. Uh, companies who find themselves in that situation, obviously their first priority is going to have to be stabilizing their operations so things uh, become, frankly, uh, tolerable. Uh, and you know, building bridges with workers is going to be an important priority. Uh, we've seen companies like Tyson facing wrongful death suits because of practices during the pandemic. There's, um, uh, Tyson tries very hard to take care of its workers in many respects, but uh, for companies like them, there's going to be a fair amount of tension uh, that's going to have to be um, uh, uh, dealt with. And one big complication is that, as Dave alluded to just now, the pandemic isn't really over. There are too many people, including too many floor workers, who are refusing to get vaccinated. Companies are going to have to deal with that one way or another. I predict that more will probably follow the lead of Tyson Foods uh, in requiring a vaccination against COVID to be a condition of employment. Uh, now, in the long term, I think that um, there will be pressure on a lot of companies to uh, stay even with or ahead of uh, certain very disruptive consumer trends. One of the biggest I've seen so far is alternative plant-based meat. Uh, we see companies like Tyson uh, either getting directly into plant-based meat or at least taking ventures in companies that do so. Uh, and um, that's a very bold move. That kind of boldness, uh, if it works out, is, is going to be what's going to sustain companies like Tyson over the long term. Yeah, as, as you said, as we record this, the pandemic is staging a comeback. And, and that's scary on a whole lot of different levels. And we're seeing many companies uh, state warnings about inflation. Some of those cost increases, but not all of which will be passed on to consumers. So, uh, you know, who knows? We're only half, we're a little more than halfway through the year, but who knows how the year will end. So 2021 will be another interesting year for big food. And say that again. Pan, Dave. Thank you both again for joining me on today's podcast. For everyone listening to the Food for Thought podcast today, Thank you for tuning in. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Stitcher, and just about everywhere you can listen to a podcast. Be sure to tune in next time as we talk more about the stories behind the headlines of the food and beverage industry. Take care. Have a great day.